finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. Uh, Andrea is the librarian, and she's also my mom. I am not my mom, and not a librarian. Uh, but what I am is a person who reads things, and then talks about them on this podcast. So is Andrea. Uh, because that's the premise of this podcast. And for this episode, we read a comic called How to Be Happy by Eleanor Davis. So, How to Be Happy by Eleanor Davis was published in 2014, and it's self-published. And no, it's Fantagraphics. Oh, Fantagraphics? Okay, so she was a former self-published author and illustrator. But she does everything in this book she does the artwork the writing the inking everything about it she does herself yeah this is entirely entirely by one cartoonist eleanor davis is somebody that i mean it makes sense that this was published by fantagraphics i i think i first became aware of her stuff probably around like 2006 2007 i'm pretty sure the first thing i ever read by her is actually one of the stories in this book that was published in mome which was Fantagraphics. It ran from like 2004 maybe to like 2011. And that was like a, I believe a quarterly anthology. And uh, I have a bunch of issues of that. A bunch of artists that I like, Jeffrey Brown, Al Columbia, they've all been published in there. And she was amongst that group. So I've always sort of associated her with that kind of, you know, mid-2000s indie cartoonist scene. So... Some of the stuff was published in her other works, her self-published works, I think, and some of it is new material specifically for this volume. I think most of it is new material, but a few of these, at least one of these, I assume more than one, uh, was previously published. This book, I thought this book was really interesting, and I like that it was a mix of like line drawings and then even the parts that were full color almost looked like watercolors. It was very interesting sort of avant-garde style, not really what you would think of when you think of like a comic book art style. It was very artistic and very sort of... Yeah, um, she... And that scene that I was talking about that I was sort of group in, there's a lot of overlap stylistically and like literally in the in the people between that and like the, that, sort, that era of like illustration. Like, you know, for, for magazines and ads and stuff. There's, like, this, like, style that is sort of carried across both of those. And she has that vibe in this. Well, for people who don't, aren't, don't know, How to Be Happy is a series of vignettes, I guess you would say. Uh, and then each one, they're all sort of, like, thematically linked by the idea of happiness. Or, to be more accurate, the lack thereof. Yeah, and I thought, I mean, I made a note to say that it's, like, not about being happy or how to be happy, but it's more about people coping in life with this sort of having happiness or, like you said, not having happiness. And it's sort of a commentary on, like, human emotions in general, which I think is very relevant in like what we're going through right now like we're in the midst of a pandemic mm-hmm. and everybody is self-isolating and social distancing 
and like the way that every single person, even if you deny COVID or you're an anti-masker, you have to acknowledge that like how people are living their lives in such a short period of time has changed dramatically. Like we're talking like about like your bubble and the people that like you spend the most time with and then trying to sort of balance the stress and emotion of living in a pandemic, living in a modern world. We're still dealing with the lingering effects of a very contentious election. We haven't, you know, even formally addressed like who is the new president elect at this point in the country. We know who he is, but you know, there's still legal ramifications. But what I was getting to in this sort of long winded segue was that like how people are happy and how they are emotionally satisfied is completely different just the way it was last year. Yeah. And I think this really, some of these stories are really poignant and they really sort of speak to like the feelings that people are dealing with when they're going through this pandemic. I mean, your bubble could be like three people like our bubble. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's very lonely when you're used to like having a larger interaction with larger amounts of people. It's kind of like, you know, a way to adapt. And this sort of kind of fits that kind of void where, you know, where you can't talk to the people about being lonely because the people that you would talk to about being lonely, you can't talk to. So it's kind of like a weird thing. Yeah, she has, in the beginning of this, there's an author note where she literally says, this is not a book. This is not actually a book about how to be happy. Uh, and then she recommends, like, if you were, that's what you're looking for, like, maybe check out a couple books that she's read. But I think what, why I said it's more about human emotions than about happiness is it's not about, like, dealing with depression. But there are stories that deal with depression. It's not about being lonely or not having a partner or, you know, being far away from your family. It kind of encompasses a lot of human emotions that are peripheral to what we would consider being happy. Yeah, well, I I think one of the big tricks here, too, is that, you know, it's called How to Be Happy. But I think a lot of this book is about questioning whether or not happiness as a concept, like, actually exists. And about questioning this idea that kind of is the driving, animating idea of most people's lives, which is that, like, happiness is, like, this ideal default state that you should be striving towards and a lot of this book is almost like a not necessarily deconstruction but at least like an examination of that idea and whether or not it's actually worthwhile or helpful well i think a lot of times in society people sort of congregate like feelings and emotions as being the same thing and then your mental well-being and your mental state is sort of guided by what these expectations of being happy or not being sad are and it's kind of different for every single person but the normalization of like you're you know you being happy or you having satisfaction in your life is sort of like a societal standard that for a lot of people you can't achieve it and that makes you feel even worse yeah well so this starts with they're scattered throughout the book there are these, like, one-page, like, little sketch comics. Yeah. And the book starts with one where it's a, it's a person sitting down and they're addressing the reader. And they say, they're telling you, they say, write a story, a story about yourself, a story about your life, now believe it. Now write another story, same subject, a better story, more interesting. 
stronger characters, and I believe that. Just keep writing. You have plenty of time. And I think this sort of sets the tone for the whole book, where it's it's bringing up this idea of, like, the, the not futility, but, like, the idea that, like, you know, this ends with just keep doing it. The, the person here has not achieved the goal. You in the you following these instructions don't automatically achieve the goal. Like no one we see in this book achieves happiness. Every story ends either on a down note or on a note of like longing. And I think that that taken together, I think the book is sort of making this statement of like there is no like end state of happiness. You don't. No one gets happy and stays happy. And it's like so. Why are we constantly striving for that? But also, I think it addresses the sort of problem where people say, "Like, why don't? Why aren't you happy? Do you know yeah. what I mean?" Mm-hmm. But I have to say, though, I think that what I really liked most about this book was these illustrations. And even though she changes sort of art styles and different stories, they're all really beautiful. Yeah, and I think that sort of that makes the book like aesthetically just. You're reading a book about like the absence of happiness, but the illustrations are so beautiful and the colors and how she puts the stories together and even the order that the stories are in makes you feel better as you're reading. It. Oh yeah, like that's like I was like, oh, everything ends on a down note or a note of lying. I don't think this book's a bummer. Like this book does, I think is is pretty comforting ultimately. If but in that way where it's not like comforting in that it's saying like everything's gonna be okay, but in that like it's like hey buddy. I know how you're feeling. Yeah, like, even if you don't feel okay, it's okay not to feel okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and not to diminish the fact that, like, if you have, if you're really struggling and you need help, that you should get the help that you need well, and it should be accessible. But for, like, just for, like, this extreme emotional period that we're going through, it's nice to read something and to say, like, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be, like frustrated and these sometimes these are fleeting emotions that help you deal with things that you can deal with them and like a book like this which is like really sort of tackling some really hard emotional themes you still feel uplifted and you know you feel better after you read it yeah do you want to get into the actual meat of the of the book now or do you have anything else to say sort of in the preamble oh no let's get into it i think there's a lot of even though it's a short book, some of the stories are only like one or even a half page. There's a lot of stories in here, which is nice. Yeah, so the first one is called In Our Eden. Uh, and this one is like done in this very like flat, almost sort of like, uh, how would you describe this style? It kind of reminds me of a sort of like 1950s like advertising illustrations. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like... Kind of almost like a paper cutout kind of. Yeah, like a collage. It's sort of like Matisse's collage, you know, where they cut out and put the pieces together. Yeah, I would say most of the art in this I would describe as being sort of impressionistic. But yeah, so this is a story about like these people who have established this like community in the wilderness where they're trying to recreate Eden. Uh, And she does this thing where the sort of central character of the story. I mean, is this guy who identifies as Adam. We later find out that his name is Daryl. Uh, he's like a big beefy guy. And so intercut with the actual action of the story, we have like talking heads from him. Like of him addressing the reader directly. And he's like a guy who's apparently was struggling with anger. 
and he's he's he says he's given that off to create this like community in the wilderness. And his big like thesis initially is that the uh, the fall from Eden is an allegory for our transition from hunter gatherers to an agrarian society. But he keeps coming into conflict with people who don't want to as fully give up the old society as he does. Like they, he gets in a fight. We find out that his name is Daryl because he gets in a fight with a guy who has snuck a bunch of candy bars into the community. And then he insists on them giving up like all industrially created objects. Like, uh, you know, he has a bow and arrow and a knife. And, uh, you know, people start to leave like the... After that, uh, he is, like, bested at a hunt. And there's a really great, like, image of him, like, angry. And he just, like, becomes completely red. And then he makes this stand that he's going to give up meat. And that there was no killing before the fall. And, like, it's clear, like, now he's losing the thread. Someone brings it up. He's like, isn't that, like, didn't you say it was, like, an allegory? Aren't we supposed to be hunters? And then he's like, when we recreate the conditions of Eden, we will know utopia. And then eventually everyone leaves except for him and a woman. And then there's this last silent sequence of him, like, totally emaciated now because, you know, he hasn't been, like, been living off of berries that he's finding in the woods in, like, modern day. Uh, and he approaches the, this woman and he says, I'm ready for the bliss to come. I'm ready for the weight to lift. And that's the end. Like, again, it's still this longing. And I think the idea here is, like, this guy... What he really wants is control, right? Like, this is about a guy with a god complex. He's trying to recreate the Garden of Eden, and he's claiming that he's Adam. But Adam didn't create the Garden. God did. And God's the one who made all these rules and cast all cast people out. And he's doing exactly the same. And so it's like a guy who... And then, he, you know, he gets challenged by that dude who, who beats him to the kill. And it's like he needs complete control. And he sees that feeling of control as... A replacement for happiness but it's not so that he still ends up at the end of the story with this feeling of longing right yeah i think it's i mean it's also about sort of like creating a utopia and whether you create it in your mind or if you create it in action and i think that's the thing is like he's sort of wandering and he's sort of confused about like what he wants in his life and then Mm -hmm. he convinces these people to follow him and then he becomes a flawed leader and then he ends up himself coming to face to face with the fact that like you said he doesn't really understand what he wants in this utopia that he's trying to create yeah but the story also doesn't like condemn him like at the end he's like approaching the woman and they like embrace and she's not like rejecting him like there's the melancholy note of him being like i'm ready for the bliss to come like, implying that it's not here yet. But the story doesn't come down hard on, like, this guy's not going to be happy or this doesn't work. I tend to conclude that if it's, like, if your happiness is contingent on becoming God, you're never going to be happy because you can never be God. You're you're always going to be a flawed human being. Well, and everything you create is going to be flawed. And if your creation needs to be perfect to make you happy, it can't make you happy. Yeah, I don't think he's really kind of invested in creating this sort of eating because it kind of fluctuates between what it it is in the beginning but i think what he's looking for is he's seeking some kind of connection and he's seeking some kind of like happiness that he himself doesn't even know what it is and i think that like the problems that he has in his utopia are reflections of his sort of 
inability to come to like this sort of concrete decision of what he thinks he's utopia is yeah i guess i think it's like kind of an exploration of like the, how you manage anger right like his problem is he's angry and throughout the story we see him every time he encounters something that makes him angry the guy hoarding the, the candy bars the person beating him for the hunt society at large he rejects and pushes those things away and eliminates them from his life until he really doesn't have anything in his life and the story leaves that open-ended like did that work is that a good strategy like i don't know it sure doesn't seem like it i kind of got the impression too at the end that instead of getting happiness from creating this sort of utopia and this new eden he realizes at the very end that the happiness comes from making connections with people which is why he reaches out to the woman who stays because she obviously has some loyalty and some affection for him or she wouldn't have stayed yeah do you want to move on to the next one? Yeah, I I like this. I kind of like the weirder ones that sort of didn't have a lot of dialogue, but they were kind of um, sort of snippets. They weren't fully functioning yeah. stories. They're just sort of like, these are the real vignettes. You kind of, they're like doodles almost. Yeah, it's like a bunch of people and they're like, all right, first we got to take off our clothes. Then we got to get in this special bag that was made in the Netherlands. And then they zip up the bag and then we just see the bag zipped up with all these people in it. I think, like, a lot of the stories, she makes a kind of commentary about how people think of millennials. Yeah, I think that's... And I think this one kind of reminds me of, like, you know, people are like, millennials have these weird things that they do. Like, they get in these nether bags from the Netherlands and, you know, like, kind of... I, I saw it as, like, an absurdist commentary on community. Yeah, I think so, too. Like, it's like, okay, now we're all going to bunch together inside a box and that'll make us okay, I guess? I don't it's know. kind of like... It, it's like similar to the previous story where it's creating this it's like a literal like physical bubble mm-hmm. that these people create and they you know when they but i think the touch of like saying like the bag is from the netherlands yeah. like it's a really nice touch and sort of a comment about like people saying like this artisanal lifestyle that millennials lead but i thought it was really like kind of sweet like that these people would be like it's like an experiment like we're all going to get in this bag and they get in the yeah. bag and they're kind of just standing around but we don't get any context we don't know like what they want out of the bag yeah. or what's happening once they're in the bag yeah but it's but, like it is like a com- like a comment on like community and communal living but then it's also like you said in this absurdist way of like drawing like all your roommates but we live in a bag now, so yeah. that's pretty funny and pretty sweet. Uh, yeah, so then the next longer story is called Nita Goes Home. And this one is, like again, drawn in a totally different style. Um, it's very, like, it looks like it might be, like, colored pencils or, like, uh, pastels or something. Like, it, it's yeah. got a very textured sort of look to it. Maybe, like, like water, the backgrounds look like they might be watercolors. It could all be watercolors kind of reminds me and i know from reading her biography that she has done some children's books Mm -hmm. it kind of reminds me of illustrations from children's books yeah yeah like especially at one point when she draws the sisters and then there's a niece and they have to wear these sort of spacesuits and these spacesuits are sort of like fruit they make them shaped like fruit with legs which is really funny and adorable there's also like a very brief panel where we see what I assume is a dog in one of those, and it just looks like an orange with a leash attached yeah, to it. Yeah, that's exactly what I was saying. But when the niece puts on, she looks like a little pear. Yeah. You know, like she has a little top knot on her head, and she sort of looks like a piece of fruit. But it's I guess it's set in the future. Yeah, this is a sci-fi story. 
and it's like there's two worlds. Nina, Nita lives in one world, which I guess is more like Earth, and then her sister lives in another world that's almost like a bubble on on a different planet, and they're kind of like an isolated well, world where they like live on hydroponic foods and. You haven't reversed, I think. So Nita lives in something called Satori Space, which they call Satspa after, afterwards. Satori is one of many words that was translated into English to mean enlightenment. It's a, it's a Buddhist concept, um, which they call a full dome. So it's like, I think her sister just lives on Earth, which is all fucked up and polluted. And then... Nita lives in this like green dome that I think is still just on Earth, because we see like of the title the drop comes in a panel where we see like the train leaving the dome. Uh huh. So I think it's just she just lives on a dome far away. I mean, it's almost like I think like what this story is getting at, like allegorically, is like it, it's like your sister that like moves to the suburbs or moves to like Williamsburg or or. You know, San Francisco or something, somewhere fancy, away from where you live. And now they have to come back home. So the, what, Nita lives in this dome where the, envir- where the environment is controlled. They're specifically able to grow stuff out of the ground. That's like a big deal. I think like on regular Earth, I assume that everything is grown in like weird pods or genetically engineered or something. And she's like an artist, and but she also works at this farm in Satori space and she gets contacted by her sister who I think is named Mona? Yes. And their dad is dying. So, yeah. so the Or he's story, at least sick. The story is about going home. Yeah. And I mean, I think what you said it's true. It's like maybe it's about like y- your sibling moves to someplace fancy but I th- think it's also about like Nita changes, like, mm-hmm. so much from when she was living with her sister when she was younger that going back is almost like a culture shock. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what it is. It's also, I think, a critique of, like, this kind of, like, lib- liberalism, lifestyleist liberalism, like, this kind of, like, Gwyneth Paltrow, organic foods thing, and the, and the contrast between that and, like, the actual material conditions of the world. I think this is what I was saying, where this is almost another nod to sort of like this conceived sort of stereotype of millennial culture, which is like, you know, oh, they're so weird and they we eat weird foods and, yeah. you know, they do these kind of weird sort of self-help things, self-care and, you know, and she goes back home and her sister's like, she's like the suburban mom. She's got a daughter and she's, you know working she's a working mom and her and her niece is sort of this latchkey kid and she kind of comes to grips with like changing how she has changed and how her life is compared to how her sister's is yeah so it's like she she arrives on the train they have these things that you you were talking about oh what do they call them they're like uh, something toxoff suits yeah because i guess the environment like is toxic onesies that like zip all the way up. Like, do you remember those, um, the like full zip, full print hoodies, like the Bape hoodies that were big in like, I don't know, like 2011 probably. 
Like, they kind of look like they're those, but, like, as, like, a short onesie. Yeah, and then they kind of make you look like a big, like, pear. Or also sort of like, um, like the Shy Guys from Mario. Yeah, because I think it's interesting in the beginning when you see Nita, she's like wearing this outfit that sort of looks like a sari and she lives in a yurt and she has a dog and she's driving around on her moped and then she goes back home and then, yeah, they're all wearing these sort of weird kind of like pull-up suits that are different colors and make them look like fruits. Yeah, and there's a part where there's like a guy, they like look down on like this coughing guy in the street um who they he, he they're like oh like everybody gets like a voucher for one of these suits and he must have sold it and this idea that it's like everyone has these suits so they can operate in the world but like some material conditions are still so bad that some people gotta like sell theirs and just brave the toxic environment and then the which really like highlights how sheltered nita is off in her special dome world where she lives she brings, um, she's very excited about bringing to the dad and the kid these, like, uh, these, um, blueberries that were, like, organic blueberries that were grown in the ground. <laughs> and it's like, uh, they, they eat them, but then they go to the grocery store and she's, like, trying to get them to buy more of these blueberries. And they're like, yeah, but the, the, or she's like, look what a great selection of Gaia grown produce they have. That's what she says. And she's like, yeah, but we can only afford the ordinary ones. And she's like, don't you understand? The Gaibron ones are the ordinary ones. That's like natural. It's the earth. And she's like, and I think the most devastating part of this sequence is just, she's like, yeah, but they look and taste exactly the same. <laughs> that's like, that's like that whole thing with like people can't understand like why organic is better or, you know, they kind of don't understand why like some people have this sort of different relationship with like food and why some people reject like you know processed foods or whatever yeah and then like she, they she also points out like the sister points out that the the gaia grown strawberries or blueberries are like three times as expensive as the normal ones the normal ones also to visually contrast them the gaia grown ones are in a spherical container and then not or non-organic ones are in a, like, a cube container. But it's, like, this idea that these people develop that these nice things they have access to because they have better material conditions than the people around them are somehow the solution to improving the material conditions of the people that don't have those things. Where it's like, oh, if we only all ate organic, everything would be great. And it's like, there are food deserts, homie. It's not yeah. even that it's more expensive. Some places they literally can't get anything. Well, I think that's what... I mean, this is a commentary on sort of like food anxiety and, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. I think it's also interesting because there's a part where, which I thought was really clever, where they talk about a taco chain. Yeah, she's like, you still got Pico Taco here? And she's like, yeah, we have it all the time. And then that comes up later. She contemplates moving back, which she doesn't do. And she's like, yeah, they don't have Pico Taco in Satori's space. <laughs> But yeah, it's like, oh, you're going back to, like, the place you were a kid. They walk around, like, the old neighborhood and, like, the canals where they used to play. I, is this specifically set in L.A.? But it has it a very L.A. vibe. Yeah, it seems like it. It Like, it is. It's almost like, it's like they grew up in L.A. and then need to move to, like, San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, or, like, to the Silicon Valley. But yeah, they talk, like, oh, we played this game called Mars Colony. They also reference Avatar. Yeah. 
like they used to play pretend with Avatar, and then she's like, uh, Nina like says this bullshit nostalgic thing where she's like, "Do you think things will ever be that good again?" And her sister's like, "I thought our childhood was a quote dystopian nightmare," <laughs> and she's like, "I was 19." And she gives like some art, it's like a sculpture she made to her dad, you know, and he's like very supportive and he makes like a little joke about it looking like the little girl who's very cute, uh, the design of her. And then that's when she's like, says the thing about like maybe coming back here and she's like, didn't you, didn't you hate it here? Didn't you call it America's asshole? (laughs) And she's like, I was 19. And then she brings up the Pico Taco thing. And then uh, two weeks, she stays around for two weeks, and then their father dies, and they spread his ashes, and she just moves back to Satori space, and it's, like, clearly more comfortable there than she was where she grew up. And it's like, she's not going back, she might not even ever visit there again. I think, though, I mean, it was kind of, it's, like, two things. It's, like, a, a comment on, like, growing up and growing apart and growing different and having different values, and that sort of conflict that happens when you've changed and you go back there's mm-hmm. kind of like sometimes you don't fit right in but then i think it's also really sweet because even though they're so completely different the sisters still have a connection and they're still sort of you know they they have that commonality of being sisters which is and she Nita sort of enjoys the time that she spends with her sister and she really enjoys the time that she spends with her niece and even though it comes back and it's almost like a culture shock, that comfortableness of being like with her sibling makes it a good experience. Yeah, but there's also like this last two things. So there's this last panel where she's picking the blueberries and it's just a shot of her like tentatively putting one in her mouth. And it's like there's this uncertainty now of like, does this matter? Does this mean anything? Is this appreciably different? But it's also, I think that loops into a conversation she also has with the sister at one point. It's either with the sister or the dad. Where she says something like, the work I do on the farm is important. But then she's out here in the real world and, like, what she's doing on the farm isn't changing things here. So, like, is it important? Like, that's the question. I, I One of the big questions that come up, comes up here is, like, if what you're improving is, like, is something important if the only conditions it approves, improves are your own? But I think the question is, is is living, we think about this a lot in this society because of climate change, but Mm -hmm. like, is it living like a wholesome human life, improving life all around? Like if you recycle, does that make the planet better if your neighbors don't recycle? Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like a comment on that. Like if all the things that I do to what I think are improving the client, the climate, and things that I'm, I think I'm doing that are improving the earth, or like the stuff that I buy, or the causes that I support. Do they help other people? But is my lifestyle helping other people, or should it be more? Should it be a broader sort of conversation with like, is should we do things on a grander scale? Yeah, I also think it's kind of like a takedown of these like the the like altruistic silicon valley like tech company it's like oh we're improving the world here's our mission statement and it's like how are you improving the world by building an electric car that only a rich guy can afford how are you improving the world by making special strawberries 
for rich people. Well, that's exactly it. Like she works on an organic farm and is she, if, is the organic farm better for the environment? Yes. But is it better for society? That remains to be seen if it's enough. Yeah. And I think that like, like you said, like her growing vegetables and fruit in the Gaia farm does not help her sister who lives in a sort of depressed economy where she can only afford the mass produced, you know, industrial farm vegetables and fruits. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't sort of matter because her daughter is healthy and her daughter is happy and she has a good life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of like what the comparison is. Sure, sure. The next one kind of really got to me. And it didn't have a name, but I, in my mind, called it The Girl at the Lake. Yeah. And that kind of really was like, this is so relevant to COVID-19. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I kind of really, kind of, like... Yeah, so it's like, it's it's um, a couple pages of just two... There's just two panels each page. But it's this woman goes down to the lake, and she sees a person... What's... Maybe a person? It's actually hard to tell. But yeah, it looks like a waving person. Well, that's it. It's so far away. You can't even really see that person or if that's even a person. But it looks like they're waving and she shouts, I miss you. I love you. Uh, And this person doesn't respond. And then she says, I can't see your face. I can't hear what she says to me. And that's the end. Yeah, it's just like a really uh, succinct portrait of like longing, of loneliness. But it's also like, is it those things? Like, does it matter that this person maybe doesn't know that she exists if this act makes her feel better? See, I misread it the first time. On the second panel where the one bubble says, I miss you, and it's coming from the left, I assumed it was coming from across the shore. And then her panel where she says, I love you, was coming from the right side. So for me, I thought that the person across the lake had yelled, I miss you, and then she had yelled, I love you. Uh, maybe, but, but it, it can also be construed as her yelling both of those things well, and getting no response. Yeah, she says, I can't hear what she says to me. So, I mean, it could be that she's saying that thing. I took it as she's saying both things because she says, I can't hear what this person's saying. Like, we, we don't get a good look at the person across the lake. Like, I didn't think we would get this. If she can't hear them, I didn't think we would. But it's possible that it's supposed to be the person across the lake is saying, I miss you, and then she can't hear that but still says, I love you anyway, which is like a different and I think sweeter message than the one I was getting out of it. Yeah, but I think it really like sort of got to me about COVID because I was thinking a lot when I was reading these stories about like, if you're not comfortable with yourself and being alone, like self-isolation can be a real burden. Mm-hmm. And it kind of feels like you're like, you're trying to reach out to people and you can't because there's really the only safe way of being with somebody is like virtually yeah or like at a long distance but it's also like i could also see this as being like a portrait of just the human interaction in general like there's you there's this idea of like you know you can never really really a hundred percent know someone and every face that someone presents to you is kind of a mask So, like, in a way, every human interaction is two people shouting across a lake and just kind of, like, assuming that the other person is saying and expressing the thing that you think they are. But it's, like, you can't fully know the effect that, like, your actions have on them unless you get can literally get inside their head and vice versa. And so I could see this being sort of, like, 
a portrait of that. Yeah, but I think I mean, just in like four panels, it was very sort of it like encompassed a lot about like trying to make a human connection. Yeah, yeah, it was a very, it's a very effective story. Um, but then the next one, longer one, is called Stick and String. This one's like almost silent, but it's like this like uh, guitar player where all of his guitar playing is represented as these like long ribbony word balloons coming out of his guitar that say zum 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 and he does like a performance for people and they applaud and they put a bunch of money in his hat and he hits the road and he stumbles across this like like a witch's coven or something in the woods in the dead of night he's drawn in by the sound of drumming and he sees these people and they're all sort of like somewhat animalistic one of them is like a big pig man there's like a person with a bird head and they're like dancing and doing some sort of ritual around the fire and he catches sight of this woman with the antlers and is like enamored of her and when the the dance he like snaps a twig by accident and startles them and they end their dance and race off into the woods but he chases after her and lures her out uh with his song and then leads her to his house and sort of like shows her all of his stuff and she's completely silent the whole time and he's like that's a window this is a plate those are my rafters uh sit down and then he goes to sleep and well presumably he sleeps with her and then he wakes up in the night and she's like scratching at the windows frantically and he plays the guitar again to calm her down and she like kisses him and lays down with him and then he has this kind of like anxious expression looking up at the rafters uh while he plays the guitar it's a pretty bleak i think portrait of like relationships yeah and i think it's kind of like like her nature is not to be there and he has to perform to like counteract her nature and keep him there again it's like the thing i was talking about where it's like you're always wearing a mask and like your personality is a performance you present to the world, and this is like a portrait of a relationship that only works if this guy's always on, because it's not in her nature to stay with him in his natural state when he's not playing the guitar. See, I saw this as most almost like a it was sort of like a fairy tale. It's very much like that, and I felt like these creatures that he falls that they're not necessarily witches, but they're more like fairy folk, and it's almost like the Wild Hunt. Yeah, or they're like spirits or something. Yeah, it's- and he kind of lures her into his world which she doesn't fit into and the only way he can keep her in his world is like you said keep performing and keeping up this sort of uh high intensity sort of personality where he's always helping her and helping her figure out things and she doesn't obviously doesn't know about like human things and she's very baffled by his house and but he cares for her, so he keeps doing it. But then obviously... But it's also selfish. Yeah. Yeah, it's like this thing where it's like, yeah, this is like an unequal relationship where he has to put in all of this work to, like, make this space comfortable for her and to, like, help her learn stuff. But he's also, in a way, by doing those things, manipulating her. It's like the story that we read. Is it Betsy Cloonan? Oh, Becky Cloonan? Becky uh, Cloonan. Demeter? Yes. Yeah, With yeah. With the Selkies... Yeah, yeah, definitely. That definitely reminded me of that, for sure. Oh, she just got announced. Um, I mean, it'll be months later when this gets posted, but they just announced that she is going to be co-writing 
uh, Wonder Woman. Like, not the not the movie, but, like, you know, the ongoing comic. I could see that. She has a very interesting take on, like, women and their roles in society. So that should be interesting. Yeah, she's done, like, she did, like, Gotham Academy for DC. So she's, like, worked with them before. It was good news, too, because they had announced... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm totally blanking on the name. Marvel was going to do a miniseries based on this Robert E. Howard character that's, like, his only female protagonist. She was The stories weren't published until after he died, but they're, like... Set in Spain, I think. Um, and she was going to write that, and it got canceled. And I, that was, like, a huge bummer. And then, like, a couple weeks later, there's this news about her taking over Wonder Woman. That was really nice. Do we have anything else to say about Stick and String? No. No, I, th- I think that's sort of the just the most surreal of all of the stories. And then it, like, has this sort of very abrupt change of sort of tone... And the next story is like two panels side by side, a man and a woman, and they're talking about their failed relationship. And at the end, she says, um, let's have a baby. And then he's kind of, his panel is like blank. It's yeah, they're being like really blunt and they're addressing the camera. And the guy's like, I've come to understand I don't care about anything except for myself. And then she's like, any kindness I've ever shown has been in my own self-interest. And they're like, Laying there like how we're bad people, we're bad for each other, we can't feel things, let's have a baby. And then they, they the sign The poor baby is like floating in this sort of black void. <laughs> yeah, that's a bummer. That one is a bummer. And then there's a short sketch comic where a guy chops a woman's fingers off while she's sleeping. See, I kind of, first I like, it was kind of confusing me because the first panel was like, this is really caring. Like she's laying on her side, she's obviously sleeping or unwell and he's taking care of her and then when you cut to the next panel he's chopping off her fingertip so yeah. I was like okay so it's kind of like you know it's not always what it seems mm-hmm. oh I wanted to go back to the stick and string the style on that one first you said do you have anything to say that you yeah said- <laughs> I just realized though because we got to the next one I was like oh this one's totally black and white and it reminded me like I wanted to shout out that there's like a cool little visual thing where Stick and string is like three colors, but it's white, black, and then this like orange. Yeah, which tint. is unusual. Yeah, it sort of makes it look like um, like a silent movie. Like if you like watch like Cabin of Doctor Caligari or something, like when they have it's black and white, but there's like this tint on the image. Mm-hmm. It has like that kind of vibe, uh, which is cool. But yeah, so the next one's the emotion room, which is just a straight up black and white thin line drawing with lots of like ink. Um, and it's like instructions on how to use this weird room. I think this is also too. I think this is what you were saying. Like there, there's a a thread of sort of surrealism that goes mm. through and sort of science fiction. And that's the same thing with this one. It's like you're told how to like behave in this room that's supposed to like cleanse your emotions. So you go through all these steps, and your emotions are like slime that comes out of you, and you deal with it. And then at the end, you sort of get dressed and you get to eat orange slices. Yes, the first panel is, enter the first door. There are oranges and slices and water here. And then the last panel is, eat the orange slices, drink the water. But yeah, it's you release your emotions and they come out. They are black and stinking. They glisten like oil slicks. This also is feels the most like a comic adaptation of like one of my tweets. Where it's like, your stinky emotions will shoot out of you like oil. <laughs> and it says they will be neutralized with an industrial strength bleach solution. But I think, like, this is, to me, kind of like a commentary on, like, what it's like when people 
think that society should moderate or like control your emotions. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, I can imagine sort of like someone saying like, she's an hysterical woman or like, she's always like acting this way or making some kind of comment about like negative comment about how her emotions are showing. And then her response is to say like, make this comic where it's like this is how we deal with toxic emotions that or emotions that society thinks are toxic yeah. that might necessarily sort of be that way but this takes it to the extreme because it's just emotions oh yeah your emotions get sucked out of you and they're and then they are destroyed mm-hmm. with bleach i also think it's definitely like like the thing you were talking about with like oh like a lot of it is about like how people perceive millennials or how people perceive like current society i feel like this is kind of like obviously like a satire of like these like self-care or these like services like it's like oh just hydrotherapy and cryotherapy and like all of these like newfangled things that are supposed to make you feel better and help you and fix your life i mean there's a more direct kind of like parody of that stuff later in the story but it's like this is the extreme where it's like instead of getting in like a pod where they shoot water jets at you and that's supposed to like activate your chakras and make you feel better this thing just like literally sucks all feeling out you. And it's like, how can you feel bad if you have no feeling? Well, I think that's sort of... Com- yeah. But I kind of felt like, especially like in this culture, dealing with a president who kind of feels like any woman that has a strong emotion is mm-hmm. a bitch. So it's kind of like if you if society thinks you're a bitch or you have too strong emotions or your emotions are out of control and you are not processing them in a way that society feels is like acceptable way of processing things you would be sent to this room to have your emotions cleaned out and you would be like a better human being and fit into society a little bit better yeah uh i think it also starts to bring up this idea that's more fully explored in a later story here yeah this is definitely a companion to the later story about crying yeah but it's like this starts to bring up that idea that is also explored in there where it's like, is happiness feeling good or is it just not feeling bad? And if it's just not feeling bad, is happiness just not feeling anything? Well, I think that, I mean, this is kind of like we saw this a lot, especially during the pandemic, that like processing your emotions in a physical way or like in a public way is sort of some people accept that and consider that open and brave Mm -hmm. and sort of a benefit to other people and being a role model of how you feel and other people see that as like being a baby or whining or being too self-serving or like being aggressive and it's kind of like yeah well you know that this podcast is very pro expressing your emotions in public because i straight up cry on the podcast (laughs) So yeah, we're good. I mean, we've seen that a lot, like on Twitter, you know, when people yeah. talk about a personal emotion, they talk about a loss or about like coming to grips with, you know, their sexuality. And that some people are, are sort of like mean mm-hmm. and sort of vindictive about that kind of stuff. And there are people who are, like we talked about with the millennials, there are people who are like, oh, all they do is walk around and talk about their feelings. Mm-hmm. But by commenting on people who always talk about their feelings you realize that those kinds of people also talk about their feelings but they only talk about their negative feelings yeah 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 that's a good point uh do we have anything else to say about this emotion room story before i I immediately decide i have something else to say in the middle of the conversation (laughs) about the next one i don't but i will live i'll put a line underneath so you can insert something at a later date yeah this next one i don't think has a title well i guess it's only one page 
This is the one I understand the least. It looks good. This is like all like watercolor with no like border or anything. Um, it's just like all like layered color and stuff. But it's like this this guy is sick and he has a cut on his hand and inside is another man with clear skin. A small mortal man he'd carefully hidden inside his own good strong body. I mean, I guess part of it is about like hiding your true self, hiding your emotions, like what happens when things are violently exposed to the world. It feels like a wound. Like it's like you've been exposed as your real self, so it feel it's like she's like turning that into this metaphor where it's like it feels like you have an open wound through which people can see you. What? It, Which is, it, I guess, like an interesting sort of way to to visualize that. My notes I have, I call it the cut because, like you said, yeah, it doesn't have a, a good name. Title for but it. I said it's weird, and there's like a nod to body horror. Mm-hmm. But I think the question I have is, are you hiding your true self? Yeah, I think that's, and that's, I think that's sort of this what this is. And like the more the guy inside, he is more open. Like you can, he has to be cut so you can see what's inside of him. But the guy inside, all of his stuff is on display, so it's like. I don't know. There's like, it's a, maybe like a more authentic self. I do like the phrasing at the end of a small mortal man he carefully hidden inside his own good strong body. Like that language is very appealing to me. It's kind of like, yeah, like maybe this man is not comfortable with his true self and he and he's having problems coming to grips with revealing his true nature. But I kind of feel like it's also sort of like this thing where it's like he's like ashamed of his yeah. true nature maybe that's kind of a comment on being like oh yeah there's like a lot of like talk about positivity and being like comfortable revealing your true self and and but like what if you yourself are not comfortable at the point of revealing yourself we had a conversation recently about i'm not going to talk too much about it, it was an incident in the news and we talked about like at what stage someone might feel comfortable like revealing their true identity their you know what they how they identify and things like that and some people make that decision early in their life and some people make it later in their life Mm -hmm. and how like being older and coming to that conclusion is just as valid as being comfortable when you're young and maybe like society has a way of pressuring people to make them not feel comfortable revealing their true self and how they feel about themselves until they're older. Yeah, it could yeah, it could also be like an ego death thing where it's like you got to strip away what feels like the real physical person in a violent fashion to reveal like the real Well, I kind of feel mortal like man inside. I kind of feel like maybe he himself is sort of not quite ready because he's there and like a woman is like administering to his cut and then at the end of the story he kind of says, you know, my find true male self or whatever however he reveals yeah, his, like his male off. strong body or something like that like maybe he's not comfortable but he's in a position where he, he doesn't feel like he can speak comfortably uh yeah well he denies having seen it she says is it down to this bonus he says i didn't look and then the narration says he had though like yeah like this is definitely like a person that's like in denial yeah and then the, the well literally the denial goes so deep into his body, it's into his bones. Yeah. Well, so the next story is called Seven Sacks. And I believe this was the first thing I ever read by her. Because I'm pretty sure this is one that was originally published in Mom. See, I find this to be more confusing than the one where he takes up with the the wood 
Yeah, yeah it's got a similar vibe. Though. This is a very fairy tale, parable, allegory type story. It also has the same color palette, uh, but a little bit richer. Like, there's more shading here, and it's it's not as dark. Like, that was all a story, like, at night with, like, shadows. This has, like, a bright white background. And I, it's like the, there's this fairy man um, who looks like Nick Frost. <laughs> uh, and he is visited... And hired by a series of, like, monsters? Yes. Who all have sacks um, that he never gets to see inside of. But it's implied that there's something alive, possibly even people, inside of these sacks. And they're hiring him. They're increasing in size, each subsequent monster. And they hire him to ferry them across. uh, And one of them tells him that there's rabbit. That, like... Sack starts wiggling and rustling, and he starts this like bird monster starts kicking it, and he's like, "Are you trying to capsize us?" And then he's like, "What do you What do you got in there?" And he's like, "Rabbits." <laughs> uh, yeah, and then he like one of them starts to have like noise, like like word bubbles coming out of him, but they're just like noises that you can't really make out. Um, the last creature is this like enormous mass of hair. With, like, these, like, radiating lines coming off of it, and six hands, and three eyes, and three horns, and it's carrying uh, three bags all by itself. And, oh, no, that's not the last one. The last one's, like, a tiny one. Uh, it's like, oh, they already started. You can see the smoke. And he, like, pays him, and he goes off, and this guy has this moment of, like, is he gonna look? Is he not? And he just thinks to himself, rabbits, rabbits. <laughs> and then he, he pushes his fairy off. And so... I mean, I think it's, like, this ignorance is bliss thing, right? Right. Like, it, he's kind of, like, it's, like, um, you know, this is the guy that every Lovecraft protagonist should take a lesson from. He's con- he's presented with this opportunity for, like, knowledge and for understanding and to learn something about the world uh, that might be scary. And he just rejects it in favor of the, like, probable fiction he was given. Yeah, and I think sometimes that everyone's been in a position where they'd rather continue to believe sort of something or they accept things and they pretend that something is not wrong or there's a problem. And I mean, it's kind of, in my mind, it's kind of like a thing where it's like you start out with something and then it grows beyond Mm -hmm. like what you can comprehend. Get out your bingo sheets (laughs) because... It's, it's also kind of a metaphor for living and working under capitalism. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, he, part of why he might not want to know is because he might not want to realize that he's been party to, he's profited off of something horrific. Yes, and I think that's it. It's better to not to know, to not look into like, what's Nestle up to overseas? Because, you know, you drive the truck that delivers the Nestle water bottles and you don't want to fucking know. Yeah, because you have a family to feed and kids to take yeah. care of and a house. And a mortgage. I think that's exactly it. But I also think it's kind of like, it's interesting because it continues to escalate. And he's kind of like, hmm, that's cool. But it kind of reminded me, I thought a little bit about like, you know, like in the book where the wild things are when they're having this sort of the wild rompus. It's kind of like they're all going over there to the wild rompus and they have these sort of bags and he doesn't want to ask, but even though he has this sort of sinking feeling that there's something not quite right in these bags because they start to sort of move around. And 
Yeah. And there's, yeah, they they do have a very Maurice Sendak, like, uh, aesthetic to them, too. The creatures that he's ferrying. But it's also, like, you mentioned, like, you said that this, I, or I said it was similar to, uh, the Stick and String, is that what the other one was called? Yes. Um, and you were like, oh, that's, this is like a fairy tale. And this is like a fairy tale that doesn't happen, because you can imagine that, like, this is like an ab- the aborted first act of like a a fairy story, right? Like in the actual story, the ferryman would get curious and he would see the monster party and be drawn into the uh, you know this underworld and into this like hero's journey thing. But here we get to see like well, what happens if you reject it? And then what you, happens is you just go back to ferrying. You just stay a ferryman for the rest of your life. You never get the fairy gold. You never meet the elf princess. But you also maybe don't get eaten by monsters or learn that you were party to like a bunch of children getting eaten or something. But also, I mean, he's kind of just happy being the way he is. I mean, he's at least not. Uh, he's he's has decided he's more probably be more happy being the way he is. Yeah, and I think this is another example of the sort of, it's not a commentary on like the expectation of happiness, but sort of how people cope in their lives to whatever level of happiness they're able to sort of get. Yeah. But like you said, it's the same thing. This this is sort of similar to that. The, the style is very sort of dreamy and surreal and the lines and the use of color sort of enhance this sort of these monsters. They're, each monster is kind of like hideous and adorable at the same time. Yeah, I really like all the designs of them. Um, yeah. No, it's a, I think it's a good one. It's, yeah. It is like, I think it's, it's maybe the one that, like you said, maybe takes the most work to figuring out exactly how it it fits into this collection, but I think it does ultimately. Yeah, because I think, like you said, like his his outward rejection of his curiosity is a mechanism that he uses to keep himself happy in his life. Like you said, yeah. I mean, whether it deals with capitalism or whether it deals with sort of emotional expectations, two different debates. But it, the, what he does in the end is he willfully decides that he does not need to know what's going on. Yeah. We get, we get another um, titleless story. I imagine the the statue is probably. Yeah, and I think this kind of reminded me of like what, especially like young women, this sort of expectation of how they as is like a strong woman and a feminist. These expectations that society puts on them, because you know it's kind of like make me a sculpture, but then also make me a better person reflected in this sculpture, which I think is very funny. Yeah, this woman has this sculpture, and she says that it's. Uh, it's not of her, but it's of her best self. So it's like bigger and stronger. And then she's giving the the jo- big joke of this is she's giving the sculptor these like um, <laughs> these suggestions that are not possible to convey through a sculpture. <laughs> right. Where it's like make her seem smarter. Uh, I want her to have a sharp sense of humor, but not like dickish. And then it sort of ends with her looking admiringly at the sculpture. But it's like she has envisioned this better self ver- version of herself. But now she just looks at it, like, and it's like, I guess that's fine. Accomplishment. Like, yeah, it's like, is imagining your better, if imagining your better self makes you feel better, then is that any, is that like, are you worse off than, like, that you're not trying to be that? 
And like, does this creation of it absolve you from the responsibility of having to become it? She doesn't need to be her better self because the sculpture is being her better self for her. I think this is kind of the two of them. The, these two are sort of like the ma- the feminine and the masculine. The next story oh, is sure. like the masculine companion of this story. But I kind of feel like it is that sort of like self-projected persona because it's so important. We talked about this when we read The Wicked and the Divine. This sort of social media persona mm-hmm. that could be different from your actual life. Because like as she she gets this giant sculpture and at one point she's like, make me like really smart, like Ivy League smart, but not like, but nice smart, like doctors without borders, nice smart. Like So she has these sort of ideas of what, how she wants to portray herself. But like when she's... When the statue is done, she's just literally laying on the couch just looking at it. I, like... really, I really like her facial expression in that sequence, too. I mean, the facial expressions throughout are really good. This is, like, it's all pink and and black, and it has this, like, loose, thin line, very, like, New Yorker cartoon yeah. kind of style to it. The statue is just, like, a white silhouette that's almost like, look, it's been cut out of the page, which is, like, really cool. But, I mean, I definitely get what you're saying about it being, like, about the, the feminine but I definitely don't think this is, like, exclusive to that. Everybody spends time imagining your better self. And this is, like, a conundrum that I've dealt with a lot where it's, like, every second you spend fantasizing about the better you you could be in the future is the second you're not spending becoming that person. Exactly. And I think that's a kind of, This is also sort of another commentary on, like, how people perceive millennials. Sure. I think so. that's true. But it's also, like... Like, what if you're, like... Obviously, society has these expectations that she'd be smart... But but nice, and then also like have a great sense of humor, but not be dickish about it, and kind of like so these ideas of what these societal standards are, she wants reflected in this sort of visual appearance of herself. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that, yeah, that's kind of like the same thing for everyone. Everyone has these sort of standards that someone else projects onto them that they have to try to live up to. Yeah, it's also like I think there's something about like rich people here where it's like she's got the money to commission this giant sculpture. She wants the sculpture version of herself to be like a person that helps people, but instead of helping people, she's just paying to get a sculpture of a version of herself that helps people. I think the only thing that could have made this better is if she was like eating like a giant tub of ice cream as she was looking at her own stuff. <laughs> yeah. Or like a bowl of ramen or something, something like that. Yeah. But no, this is a good one. This one might be the funniest one in the collection. But yeah, then the next one is, I guess, called Make Yourself Strong. Uh, and this is all, again, just like, you know, thin, wiggly sort of like pen drawings of this dude who kind of looks like Adam from the first story, um, who's just working out and getting really beefy. He also kind of looks like Bluto from yeah. Popeye. I like the way that is Strong no... is pers- like personified as like huge upper body, tiny, tiny little legs. Yeah. There's no panels in this one. But so he works out on the first page. It gets really strong. And then he hears someone calling for help. The second page is just a little drawing of him on a blank page and it's like help help and he has like an exclamation one of my favorite comic conventions is the word balloon that just has a single piece of punctuation in it yes so he's got a just an exclamation mark word balloon and then we get a bunch of sequences of him helping people he lifts a car to save someone he beats up a mugger he saves a bunch of people from falling off a cliff into the mouths of sharks and then he's carrying everybody on his back he st- saves them from a building that's falling over and then we get one panel of this like extreme close up of him it's more detailed. Where it's like the I really love the, the construction of this page, um, because the building is just like 
the, the pages is divided. It's just like a two-page spread. It's all black. It's a black diagonal through it. And so the building is just this, like, black plane. And then everything else is this white plane. And then he's below it struggling to pick this thing up. And then the last panel is... And then the next page is him with everybody in his arms smiling. And then him flexing and smiling and laughing. And it's like... You know, this guy got strong and then used his strength to help people. But there's this, like, that panel of him struggling, like, implies this, like, you know, this is untenable. Like, he, he's eventually going to find something that's too heavy to lift. But then he gets comfort in still in lifting the thing that he can, which is everybody up on his shoulders. Yeah, and I kind of feel like it's... This is, like, the sweetest and most hopeful one, I think. What were you going to say? Yeah, and I think it's kind of like... I think it was like you make yourself emotionally strong so that you can be emotionally strong for other people. And I mm-hmm. think that's a sort of a, a good thing because if you're a wreck, then you can't like help people all the time. But I think it's kind of the same thing. Like he's a man, he gets very strong and he has to help people. And then kind of you see like this like moment of weakness where even though he's a really strong masculine man, he's still kind of vulnerable to sort of anxiety like he's worried about can I do this and then at the the next panel he's lifting up all the people that he can because he does just what he can yeah which I think is nice yeah yeah and it's kind of like a positive message about like you yourself can be the way that you want to be and then you can also make a positive change in the world and still be yourself yeah and it's like a guy gets strong but he's not he doesn't he beats up the mugger, but it's clear, like, the main goal and the thing that's making him happy here is, like, not the strength because it makes him powerful and, like, lets him, like, control people. It's almost like a counterpoint to the first story. It's, like, the thing that makes him happy is is helping people. Yeah, because at the end, like, there's a half panel of him, like, flexing his muscles. And then the last one is him just laughing and smiling and you get a close-up of his face. I think it's a very uplifting, very sort of... Sweet, like some of the stories you read, and you're like, "Wow!" Like the woman with the sculpture, "Whoa, she's such a narcissist," or whatever. Yeah. But this one you read, and you're like, "This is like a really positive view of like people and you know helping." Yeah. And I think it's very nice. Yeah. I think it's kind of like the same thing where it's not all the stories are sad or kind of cutting commentaries on society. The one that is later on, the Greyhound Bus one, is really like a commentary on like how people perceive themselves and how they project themselves. And I think this is sort of a nice sort of... Yeah. I also think, like, with it being, like, a counterpoint to the first story, it's, like, these are both stories where, like, in this one, where, like, a guy puts the community on his back, right? Yeah. This happens literally in this. Also, I'm just noticing in the mass of people on his shoulders on the, like, third to last page, there's a woman that's breastfeeding two babies. <laughs> It's like a guy like waving a flag and like a cowboy. Um, and there's like, yeah, a hippie lady. I kind of think that these might also be the same people who get in the bag. Yeah, it reminds me of that. But that's like, again, this this is like community, right? Like both of these stories, it's about like a strong man who puts the community on his back. And in the first story, Adam, like he like is torn apart by like seeing the things that he can't control and the things that he doesn't like. And it makes and it, it creates this discontent in him. Whereas this guy is, like, just embracing the, like, communal joy of everyone. Like, everyone's cheering, and they're happy that he's lifting them up, and he's happy to lift them up. Yeah. And he's not, like, over-examining things and, like, getting mad about, like, you know, the limits of his body. And even when he doesn't counter his limits, he still, like, recovers on the next page, which is nice. The next story is maybe the one I'm most confused by. I 
I'm not entirely sure what is going on in this. It looks great. Again, it's like another like watercolor. There's no like uh, outlines. It's like a really like immaculately designed story. Really like cool use of negative space throughout this. Yeah, it really this really does sort of have the same thing that sort of fifties advertising sort of aesthetic. It's yeah. a story of a young boy and a young girl, their neighbors, and she likes to watch his dad mowing the lawn and then they become friends and she asks him, Do you know this actor? And Jean Gale. Yeah, and like the yeah. And the dad has this like very like we get like the when I was like, Oh, cool use of negative space, he's wearing like a white shirt when he's mowing and that's blending into like the background. But he's got this very like classic movie star vibe with like a big strong chin and like a little, little mustache and he look, looks like Clark Gable. Yeah, and then they watch this sort of it seems like they're supposed to be there's this expectation that they're both teenage um they're both teenage and they have a thing in common, so maybe they should have a relationship. And they start watching this movie and then they start kissing. But meanwhile, both of them are looking at the screen at the movie star who kind of looks like his father. Her, her father. Her father. It looks exactly like him because it's literally just the sequence of him mowing the lawn again is the thing that's played on the thing on the movie but it's black and white now there's also a part in the middle where uh she just eats the cheese off a slice of pizza which that's fucked up and and she says that her dad works for the government for national defense and it's classified information and then when they're going into the house to watch the movie we see the dad but not his face and then they watch the movie and then it's the the dad on it and they start to kiss and then they look behind them at something we can't see so oh, i thought they were looking at the tv screen I think they're looking, they might, it might, either the perspective switches, like, the crosses the 180 line, and we're looking at them from the perspective of the TV screen, and they're looking at the movie, which maybe does make more sense, or, yeah, it does, okay, because the last page is three panels, increasing in size with each one, and one is, we're the viewer, the camera, is positioned behind the laptop, then in the second panel, we're positioned, wait, we're positioned, the first one we're positioned looking at the back of the laptop. Then it switches behind them so we can see the laptop screen. So then presumably the last panel switches back mm-hmm. over. Yeah, so we're watching them kissing while looking at the movie, which stars her dad. I mean, I think there's something like, the, the boy clearly has a crush on the dad, right? Well, here's what I was thinking. First of all, I was thinking that, this girl sort of creates this sort of fantasy world where her father is obviously like a guy who sits on the couch and watches TV. Yeah. And she made him into this sort of government spy or whatever. But then I think that also I think that the boy sort of it's, I think it's about gender roles. That's what I was thinking Mm -hmm. that the boy is sort of having this societal expectation of him being a heterosexual boy making out with a girl but meanwhile he's watching this sort of idealized masculine figure on the tv screen but what do you make of her watching him i think she is there's something wrong with her family life and she's sort of looking for a father figure because she's i thought that the guy mowing the lawn was his father no i'm pretty sure that's her father because when they go in the house you don't see his face but he's wearing the same outfit yeah yeah. i think there's something with her that she's looking for some some kind of like masculine role model and he's looking at 
a masculine figure because he's questioning his sexuality. Yeah. That's that's the only thing I could get from it because it didn't really make any sense to me any other way. This is the most Dan Clausey story in this collection. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it looks really good. And like I don't think it's a bad story. I was just a little bit... I didn't totally grasp what was happening. It's here. kind of like a it's like a teen sort of movie from the eighties where it's like this weird, awkward boy mm-hmm. strikes up a friendship with this on the outward appearance very confident girl and they become friends and then you realize that they're both awkward and not confident. Yeah. So the next story is called Thomas the Leader. It's all in like pen and ink. Style, I think there's like maybe like a little bit of charcoal applied here and there for like backgrounds and trees and stuff. But it's like about these two little boys. It opens with one of them singing the Lecktail theme song to himself. Yes, that's really adorable. <laughs> this boy Thomas goes to visit his friend Davy, and they go exploring in the woods and they find an abandoned house. And they go in and there's like all this stuff and they're like poking around in the wreckage of this person's life. There's a couple references to like other like Fantagraphics comics here. Uh, which is fun. Um, but they are sort of like exploring and they're talking about like, oh, this is going to be like our hideout and we're going to put a symbol on the map so that people don't know where it is and they'll be confused. And when they get up there, there's like a mound of something in the back that makes like what seems like it might be a breathing noise. It's like, shh, And they get scared and they run away. I really like the way that... um. She portrays the, like, franticness of them running, where it's, like, the panels stop being, like, regular rectangles, and they're all cut at diagonals, and it's just, like, extreme close-ups of, like, right up against their face, and, like, their, like, legs coming down the ladder, uh, and then they, one of them gets out before the other one, and he's clearly, like, Thomas is, like, ashamed of being scared, and of, like, abandoning his friend and then when they go to hang out and read comic books together they get in a pillow fight that ends with thomas putting his knee on davy's neck and he tries to like apologize and it's he's like oh i was just kidding it was just a joke but it's like i think it's again this thing of like people whose happiness relies on like control thomas has this image of himself as the leader that's shattered by him getting scared in the house and then he takes it out violently on davy yeah i think that i mean i thought it was about sort of like it's kind of like the story of it's like a comment it's almost like goosebumps it's like a comment on like children's relationships and the sort of casual violence that's like found in suburban children relationships mm-hmm. and it was like you know like this is like a life of kids without adults in it like how they would behave so he takes on like you said he takes on this sort of aggressive role as the leader who's never afraid and then when he shows fear he reacts by being violent yeah and it's also like this shattering of the illusion thing where it's like um it's it's i think is also like kind of of a piece with the first story where it's like thomas has this like vision of like this is what we're gonna do this is gonna be our clubhouse he has all of these ideas and then when he becomes scared and loses control over this space all of those ideas are broken and and sort of like have to be thrown in the garbage and it it fucks him up it makes him angry. Like, he suddenly, like, lost his control and in, in the process lost, like, his identity in this little friend group with him and Davey. Well, I think that's it. I think once you show weakness, your role is can be challenged 
it's like Lord of the Flies. He has to like assert dominance over mm-hmm. the friendship. There's always like it's almost like a bully situation where he has to be the alpha in this situation, even though there's really not a lot at stake. Yeah, it's also clear like Davy doesn't care. It's it's less like oh now your role can be challenged. It's more like now you are. You've shown fear, and now you've opened yourself up to also fear this coming challenge, which might not ever come. Right. But yeah, this is a pretty short little story. It's kind of disturbing, though, if you think about it. Well, yeah, it's like, well, what's in the house? Like, it's like a little little horror story. Like, Yeah, it is. What was that? Part of me, like, had this weird idea that it doesn't work because it doesn't look the same, but I was like, what if this is, like, a sequel to the stick and stone one? And it's like, what if she's still in the house? <laughs> but I don't know if that's the case. But it's like, there's something. Is it a, is it fucking Spidey from, uh, you say cheese and die? Is it just like an animal? Was it nothing? Like, and then Is it I, just a homeless guy sleeping in the house? Yeah. I don't know. That's, that's what part of the horror is. You have to imagine it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and then it also kind of ties into that Seven Sacks thing. Where it's like, they don't look. They don't learn. They're left with the ambiguity there. Uh, but then instead of being a comfort there, it's it's uh, anxiety-producing here. But yeah, so the next story is, like, I, this is the one that I think is the more, one of the more direct, like, uh, satires of, like, self-help, self-improvement, self-care type shit. Because it's, like, four panels of the same woman at different points in her life, and she's like, I used to be unhappy, but then I got on Prozac. I used to be so unhappy, but then I took up meditation. I used to be so unhappy, but then I had a baby. I used to be so unhappy, but then I tried yoga. And it's like, after each thing, she's still unhappy. And then she feels in this moment now that she's not unhappy, but she's she will feel that she's unhappy again. And then the next panel is like full page. The next page is like just, just a close-up of her, like red-faced and crying with her head in her hands. And then she's like, has this like soliloquy about how, you know, she's about being depressed, essentially. About feeling like empty, feeling like you're full of nothing and everyone else is. And then this woman tells her like, oh, you know, I was like you, but now, but I'm now I'm gluten free. <laughs> and it turns out my depression was really a form of wheat allergy. And then there's this like last very like melancholy panel of her like weakly smiling while she picks up a loaf of gluten free bread. Well, I think this is sort of a comment on the same thing about like a comment on sort of like mental health and like depression where people are like why can't you just snap out of it yeah exercise get outside yeah. or like there's always some sort of holistic solution that you you can offer people but then i think it's also about like people sort of telling you to do these different things and then just because they work for you like i'm not saying like yeah you could have like you could be down in the dumps you could be upset you could be emotionally drained and yes yoga will help you Mm -hmm. but like that's not saying like this woman doesn't have like a chemical imbalance in her brain and needs medicine but the first thing we see is that she's on prozac so it's like she's already like it's like all the socially acceptable methods of combating depression it seems like she has applied there's a societal pressure to not acknowledge that depression is a real thing to not examine like the the world and what causes this and to really dig into these feelings and it's like much easier to dismiss depression as a form of wheat allergy than it is to really like combat it head on yeah and i think it's sort of a lack of self-awareness where you think that you can fix someone else's problem by suggesting they do something simple that like if it was so easy to cure postpartum depression with being gluten-free like 
it wouldn't be the epidemic that it is now. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, yeah. And I feel like it's it's kind of a comment on both, like, about, like, self-help, like you said, but I think it's also about, like, self-diagnosing and also, like, society diagnosing people. Yeah, and it's like that, that thing where it's like, just this one thing. If I just change this one thing in my life, I'll be happy. And then you're constantly changing the just one thing and you're never happy. And now you're fucking exhausted because you have to spend all day doing yoga and rock climbing and transcendental meditation. And none of it is making you any happier. Well, I think also too, I mean, it's the same thing we talked about. This is, we talked about millennials a lot, but I think millennials are the generation where they were raised to do, to be constantly busy and like, if you're sad and you're sitting alone and you're thinking about your emotions, it's like you've been conditioned your whole life to be doing something. Like, how many times have you been told, I'm guilty of this myself and also my parents are also guilty of this, but telling kids that are laying down because they don't want to do anything, like go outside or go read a book or go do a project or take up a hobby. I have 5,000 hobbies that I've had, you know foisted upon myself because I was inactive enough as a child. Yeah. This one's the most, maybe the biggest bummer of all of them. Yeah, and I think, but I think it's kind of, a, it. There, in my mind, I have to see that there is a point where Davis has been subjected to this kind of behavior and this is a response to it. Yeah, also just to be clear, we keep bringing up the millennial thing. She's like 37, this is not like a boomer who's trying to lecture people. This is no, like a, no, no. an she's, empathetic work. She's writing about her own experiences and they happen to be relevant to a large group of population because they're all going through the same thing at the same time. Yeah. We get another little comic where it's like a, a woman like going through like an exercise, uh, or she's like, pray, say, thank you. Like find the stories that you come that help you comprehend and comprehensible, find the stories that make you stronger. And it's just sort of like this like little ritual exercise that she's sort of like drawn out. It also kind of feels like a counterpoint to the opening sketch comic about like, keep writing the story better until you're better. I like how it's like, it goes from like, you can pray and then just like say thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so the next one is in 2006, I took a Greyhound from Georgia to Los Angeles. This reminds me of like, I don't know if this was a 24 hour comic, but it reminds me of like the style you often see of those, where it's like a bunch of little panels, almost sort of thumbnail-y, uh, all sort of like, black and white with like little goofy smudgy looking people some of them just like, there's like one guy who is like wearing a football jersey but he doesn't have any arms i think this is the most autobiographical i assume that this is autobiographical i have no idea and it's presented like it is this is the one where we're saying it's sort of the most about sort of the commentary of like how people perceive them publicly perceive themselves on how they feel on the inside because a lot of this is about sort of people's perceptions of dealing with like immigrants or even people they perceive as immigrants that may not be and there's kind of like these women on the bus that are kind of like they just sort of judge people yeah so the whole thing is like snapshots of things people are saying and doing on this Greyhound bus there's this woman who's like I'm going to New Jersey this is my boyfriend's championship belt he's a heavyweight (laughs) boxer (laughs) and there's like a guy he's he with like a beard and long hair who everyone is like trying to ignore who they seem to think something is wrong with him a, a dude goes to the bathroom and is like I'm glad I have glad spray and he sprays glad in the bathroom glade 
in the bathroom, but then he sprays it on that guy, and it's like, again, kind of like this tox off suit thing. It's like the callousness of like how we treat these people. Well, that's like, exactly what I was saying. They don't. This guy doesn't think there's anything that he he actually thinks he's being helpful yeah. by bringing Glade and spraying it on a human being. Yeah, dehumanizing this guy, uh, and someone laughs. It's real fucked up. Uh, there's like, and then this. Uh, a girl, the police arrive on the bus and a girl is taken away as a runaway and they sort of make snide comments about her and then someone ends up being sick and the ambulance comes. This seems like a really wild... Yeah, this is a really... Yeah, someone's sick and the ambulance come, the police come and take away a guy um, who they believe, I guess believe is an illegal immigrant. Uh, there's just a really chilling panel of like, it's... It's a, what's your business in Texas, amigo, the cop says to the guy. Then just a panel of, like, a barking dog and Mm -hmm. then a panel of the bus going through the night. Uh, And then there's, like, this sequence of her looking out across the desert, like, at these, like, oil derricks. And then it pulls into this really beautiful, like, double-page spread of, like, the hand, the, like, luminescent hands of God coming down through the clouds over the desert. Mm Mm-hmm. And then it cuts, goes back into the panel structure, and it's this weird little, like, story at the end where this guy is talking about how um, his he lives in Mexico because his wife is Mexican, and she was an orphan, and, she, and all he wants is for her to cross the border to buy cheese because he hates Mexican cheese. <laughs> uh, and then she gives, he gives her a Butterfinger. <laughs> He says, take this, I don't want it. And she's like, thank you, Butterfingers are my favorite. And then we just get like a last panel of like everybody sleeping and then her eating the Butterfinger and looking wistfully out the window. Like, and I guess in a way, like trying to reclaim this like religious moment of seeing these like, I mean, I don't think it's literal seeing the hands of God coming down, but th- I've had those moments where it's like, you know, like you're on the bus and you just fucking look out into the night sky or you're just walking around, you know, you're, you, I, I remember this, this moment in particular, um, where I had been hanging out with uh, my friends in the city, and I took the bus home late at night, and I was walking down the street, and it was snowing, and like looking up at the like the, straight up at the snow falling and like the light of the streetlights, and having this like, oh fuck, I'm in the universe, like the entirety of existence is opened up above my head, like <laughs> moment. And that's what I feel like she's portraying here, where it's like in the midst of all this chaos and this weird, uncomfortable trip, she like looks out at the horizon and like just has this moment of like intimacy with the vastness of the universe uh, and, you know, and all of creation. Right? I think so. Yeah. It's also, yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, like you said, everyone has had that sort of, even within a group of people, she's in the sort of, she's in a little literal group. Like mm-hmm. the people in the bus are like... In a bag from the Netherlands. Yeah, and then she, in in the midst of this, she has a sort of feeling where she's one alone, and she's also getting a great awareness of something, sort of, you know, like epiphany or like a, I don't know what another word for that is. It's like yeah, a religious epiphany. experience. Almost. Satori. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like yeah, the, the bus is like this community, but then people are being removed from it. It's like the forces of society, so society and the world. Like you're sick, you're a runaway, you're, and it's like peeling the people off one by one, even after they have these moments where their humanity is revealed. I think the next one is the weirdest one. Yeah, so this is another one where there's like no panels. It's just thin line ink drawings. It might just be pencil, actually. Oh, yeah, I think it's just pencil. 
Uh, and it's like this story about these people who are, it seems like, I don't think it's said definitively, but it seems, I get another feeling that this is like another, like, these are people on a commune sort of situation. They might just be like camping together or something, but they find a fox that's like, I guess it's been hit by a car or something and it's dead and they string it up and they skin it. And it's just like the intimate portrait of the process of skinning this animal and it is like, you know, it, I think it's like a meditation on like death, on passing into the afterlife. The skin, in effect, becomes like the fox's soul. Towards the end, there's a moment where like the foxes, there's, she says like it seems like there were two foxes, and like the the inside out skin is hanging off of the nose of the skin fox, and she's like there's two foxes kissing, and it's like the soul leaving the body, right? Yeah, but it's also kind of like a group of people doing a really weird thing together. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. It just kind of it really disturbed me for some reason. I don't know if it was the visual images of the fox being skinned or like the sort of like complacency, the sort of complicity almost of these people in the group. I mean, they obviously know how to like skin an animal. Well, she mentions that like they skinned a rabbit before and this is like the same idea, but it's different. There's a really gross part where the muscles on the legs snap because they were damaged when the fox died. And she's like, oh, the fox's skin is harder to take off than the rabbit's. But it's also like, what are they going to do with it? It doesn't explain what their the goal is to do with this fox. Well, people wear fox skins. I, I have no idea. It's It kind of is like weird. And if it, any of them didn't fit into the story in the It's thematic. hard to parse what this has to do with happiness. Yeah. I get like, like I said, I, I get it as like an exploration of like the relationship between life and death and the physicality of like bodies and stuff but i don't know what it really has to do with happiness per se i mean unless it's just like about like the like it's about a communal act i don't know yeah not sure what to make of it i didn't find it quite as disturbing as you did but i was a little perplexed by it i do think like there's something really in powerful and novel in the that final image of the two the two foxes kissing yeah um, which is not something I'd ever really seen or contemplated before. Like, I appreciated the, the her, like, observation of that image. I think also people had this sort of idea of, like, hunting being, like, a primitive thing that happens. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. It's just kind of, it's, it, to me, it was almost like disposing of a body. Like, kind of like. Yeah, well, because it it's so horrifying. ritualized. It did yeah. feel like, it was almost like they're like mummifying it. Not yeah. that they literally do, but it reminded me of like reading about that process where it was like everything, I mean, they handle it with care, right? So it's like, is it about like, is it there for you to like think about like, to gain some happiness and thinking about like what's going to happen with me when I'm gone and imagining someone treating to imagine someone treating the like your remains with care, I don't, I don't, know. I don't know. It's just kind of weird. Uh, and then we get a short little one where it's like a bunch of panels of a woman experiencing different emotions, and it's like the woman feels sadness, the woman feels joy, the woman feels anger, the woman feels fear, the woman feels, the woman feels nothing, the woman, and then like the they're like the all the panels leading up to the woman have like a black background, and then that one has a white background. And then it's just line art in the last panel that has no text on it. I mean, I think it's just like another like compression of this idea of like, man, maybe maybe you, maybe we should just not feel things. Maybe all the problems are caused by feeling things. 
I think also, I mean, I saw it also as the kind of thing where it's like some people might not understand women's emotions. It might be uncomfortable. And this was sort of a satire and explaining like how women feel things. Mm. I don't know. I think a lot of it has, a lot of this book has to deal with being like angry as a woman that people don't understand or take the time to understand. Yeah. Uh, So the next story, the next long, this might be, I think this was the longest one in the book actually. It's called No Tears, No Sorrow. The art here, again, it's like all flat, but I, it's not, it doesn't look painted to me. I, I think this is digital. It looks digital to me, but I could be wrong. Um, but it's, it's all in this like blue, yellow, and orange color palette with like lots of white too. Um, and like people are singled out by like the use of color to like, just like someone raises their hand and everyone in the crowd is blue, but the person raising their hand is orange. So there's a little cool visual tricks here. Tricks here. And there are panels, but they're like, there's no borders on the people, and there's also no panel borders, which is a trick she's sort of done before, too. This kind of reminds me of sort of 70s, like, religious textbook artwork. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> there's, some of my favorite art in this is, okay, well, we'll get to the story. It's a seminar for people who can't cry to teach them to cry that's being led by this, like, this, like, very, like, uh, t- you know, touchy-feely self-help seminar guy. Um, and the, our protagonist is this woman named Jennifer who wants to cry because she didn't at her mom's funeral. Right. And she feels like she should. And this guy has this sort of like thesis of like, you gotta, to feel happiness, you have to like break through this barrier of sorrow. That, it's this thing that people talk about a lot where it's like, you need the contrast, right? Like if everything was good, you, you wouldn't know when things were good. And so it's like, you gotta feel sorrow in order to feel happiness. This dude's name is Paul Castorzano. And he has a book called No Tears, No Sorrow, No Sorrow, No Joy. No Tears, No Sorrow, No Sorrow, No Joy. It's two sentences. And so he shows them these images. This is my favorite art part. He shows them these slides of sad stories, but they're these black and white drawings of these little, like, round-headed, like, not stick figures, but these, like, gestural icon people who are all experiencing these sad situations. And he's like crying and he's like contemplate these things and feel these these moments and it's almost like it's almost like a satire of the idea of storytelling in a way where it's like oh we're just showing you these images of things that aren't really happening and asking you to be sad about them but it's like one one of them is like a little guy holding a flower and one of them is like dead in like a coffin and he's like i never told him how much i loved him i am dying of starvation in a world of plenty Dad says Rex has to be put down. <laughs> yes. And these, like, recur over and over again through here. And initially, the people look at them, and they don't feel anything. And then they talk about, there's, like, a little meeting of them where they're like, oh, we didn't, you're, you're allowed to sleep a little bit, but not a lot. He's, like, clearly trying to, like, break down their barriers. There's another thing where there's, like, a, a diagram of, like, a guy with a page boy haircut with arrows all over his face <laughs> and hands that's showing you how to, like, physically express sorrow. I mean, he makes them all, like, pretend to cry in order to cry. Uh, and there's this the one guy, there's this big dude named Matt who's wearing a shirt that says Spam. Bam on it. And he is there because his wife told him he should go. Uh, and she sort of, like, has, like, she talks to him. He's kind of, like, the other main character of this. And they have to look at more of these images. And it's like, I stepped on a landmine while tending my sheep. And all the dudes have, like, these totally flat expressions, these little gesture people it's just like dot i dot i a little line for the nose and then a little flat line for the mouth uh that's what sort of reminds me of like this sort of 
religious class textbook. It also reminds me of the uh, little um, vault boy from Fallout. Yes, the same thing where they're sort of like these... Um, the, even the color scheme sort of reminds you of these sort of like grade school books. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite ones of these little panels, because it's like, it's showing the alternating panels of the slides and of the people trying to cry. And one of them is, my mother died protecting me from danger. And it's like, she's like T-posing and falling over with X's on her eyes. And then the guy that's, there's like a muscular dude who's like uppercutted her. And he has like a flat like brow line for his eyes. And like, oh, there's like a little baby guy like who is expressionlessly watching his mother fall over after getting punched. Uh, and eventually there's like a breakthrough and everybody except for Jennifer starts crying and like Matt loses it. It's almost like a, a sort of a mass hysteria. Like one of them starts crying and then they all start crying. Yeah, and then he the 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 teacher uh what is his name? Paul tells her like don't worry about the progress other people are making. Just focus on the images. And then she starts to cry, and then everyone's crying. And then this guy, like, looks at his watch, like, oh, okay, this is the time. Like, it's like, this is nothing for him. He was, like, he's just crying. crying in the previous panel, and then he's like, yeah, okay, this is his job. And he goes over, and he puts on some music. And then uh, he's, like, congratulating them on their progress, and Matt can't stop crying. And he's like, like, what about the kids that are dying because they can't afford medicine? Like, what about the all this stuff on the screen? And the guy's like, well, look, those are just drawings. And he's like, yeah, but, like, that stuff really happens. Like, what do I do about it? Now I feel, what am I supposed to do now that I care about that? And I feel that. And he tries. That's a different class. Yeah. And he's like, you know, Matt has broken through not just to his own sorrow. He's reached a profound state of empathy for this vast sorrow of the entire world. And he, like, tells me he has, like, a beautiful heart and that the world would be better if there's more people like him. But he offers no solution to this guy. Right. Because the class is only about how to cry, not how to do things yeah it's and it's again it's like this focus on the self it's like you need to feel sorrow but then it's like using the sorrow that exists in the world to make you feel sorrow but then offering you any tools to deal with that uh and then she goes to the Publix and cries in the middle of the aisle while people are buying frozen pizza and that's the end of the story and the end of the no it's not the end of the book but it's the end of that story well, I think it's kind of like you said, it's like an absurdist comment on like self-help. This is like the extreme version of it. Like they go to a self-help course because they can't cry. Yeah. It's pretty funny. I mean, I, I like the, the art and I like the style and I like what you were saying. And I think it really was sort of like a really cutting kind of view of like, you know, it, what if you're not processing emotions in the same way as everyone else, then all of a sudden you have to take a class. But it, like I was saying about that 70s sort of textbook, like religious textbooks, I remember when I went to Catholic school, we had a textbook that was sort of like this. And there was a page that was like, it was like, what is empathy? And it was like a question mark. And then it had like little scenes of like characters that were displaying sort of, it was kind of like a test almost. Like it was displaying like these little scenes and you would have to decide which ones were depicting these scenes of empathy. But as children, we didn't really know the definition of the word empathy. So we were kind of like baffled, but we were fascinated by these sort of pictures of like a guy like milking a cow and like someone was sick and another person was holding his hand. So we were kind of like, 
which one is empathy? Because, like, <laughs> like, this guy obviously cared about his cow. He was taking it, you know, and so it was very confusing. We never really learned anything. But the religious book was supposed to, like, be, like, a conversation starter. But mm-hmm. because we were in a Catholic school, they didn't have a conversation. <laughs> so, it's good. So, anyway, kind of, you were more confused about, like, like, we knew more about, like, St. Francis and his love of animals than we knew, like, how to be, you empathetic? know. Empathetic? Empathetic as Christian, you know, children that we were supposed to be learning how to be. It was a very confusing time for everyone. Yeah. So there's just two <laughs> short, like, little strips left. There's one that's just six panels, and it's a first-person view of a person walking through the vein, the rain. And it's it alternates between thought and no thought. And the thought panels are in color. And the no thought panels are blurry and smudgy and black and white. And then it's like, no thought, no, no thought, don't think. And I think it's just like, this is, it's anxiety, right? Like, this is a portrayal of anxiety. You think, and everything sucks, so you're trying not to think. And then it's like, you think about things, and they give you anxiety, and now you have anxiety about the idea of thinking about things. Like, it's 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 very real and honest. I totally feel it. it, Yes, it's it's like a really sort of relevant like comment on the like circular thinking that like increases your anxiety and this sort of comment on like self-soothing which is sort of an important tool to have to like deal with like if you're aware of the onset of anxiety and you can sort of comfort yourself it makes it easier and I think this sort of this is I mean how many people haven't felt this way like just even like an mundane thing like walking to the bus stop in a rainstorm yeah, and then this last strip, it's like, it's January 4th and the last year has been hard, and there's like a it's first person riding in a taxi, uh, the radio program is in a language I don't recognize, and then they start playing a song, and then there's this observation of like, the mind is a shitty place to live, wouldn't it be good to be free of it? The song ends and starts a third time, like taking off a bad pair of glasses that hurt your head and make everything ugly, so nothing stands between you and this beautiful world. And it's again getting into this idea of like, living authentically of like abandoning anxiety of like our our emotions the things that make us feel bad i mean this is the thing i've been feeling recently anybody that follows me on twitter i sort of retreated into this weird persona of a, a, a moss ball and like was like bullying people for being sentient and it's like it that's a thing that i i struggle with where it's like you know uh, is everything that hurts me coming from inside my own head and is it fucking up my my brain fucking up my ability to like perceive the world like maybe everything just looks so bad because i'm making it look bad with my perception i think yeah and i think also it's sort of a comment on that sort of right at the end of the year the sort of kind of catharsis that's supposed to take place at the end of the year where you reflect on all the things that you did and then you make plans for the next year and this whole like bullshit kind of idea of like making a new year's resolution like half the time like people make these earnest new year's resolutions and then by january 4th they can't even achieve them it's like that sort of making goals that are hard to achieve and then the guilt that comes with like not being able to do that yeah totally so and then the last one is the same thing it's sort of like this little it's a single um, drawing yeah, and it's like people throwing a person up in the air, and then they're going to catch them. But yeah, but it's this moment of, like, that's not the moment of resolution. Like, it's this hanging thing. Again, it gets back to this, like, 
the longing, the process, the moment where you're waiting for the thing to happen, like, that's the entirety of it. Like, this is just a portrait of the moment before the thing happens. Yeah, and I think it's kind of... It, the moment where, after you've taken the action, but before you've seen the result. It's the same thing, like, where a hundred people can look at a painting and have a hundred different responses. It's the same thing. You can look at this as sort of a hopeful kind of image where people are in a collective and they're going to catch someone who's falling. And then the same thing, it could be this sort of sort of stasis where you're in between good and bad and you're falling. And then it could also be sort of a bad thing. Like, you know, they could be throwing this person up in the air and they could be walking away. Like, you don't you don't know. It's there's, kind of like that limbo. Yeah, there's also the question of, like, what's the thing that's supposed to be good here? Is it supposed to be the moment you're in the air and then... Is that when you're happy, when you're flying free? Or is the moment when they catch you supposed to be the thing that makes you happy? Well, I think that's the philosophical debate, that you look at that and you kind of... But it's the same thing. It ends on a note that's hopeful, question mark? Depending on your perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's sort of interesting because it sort of provokes people to have their own thought process about what's happening. And I think that's sort of the most sophisticated part of this storytelling is that the concept of happiness is it's never fully defined and it's portrayed in so many different ways but then you have to decide which version of happiness is the most relevant to you. Yeah, and that is uh that's it. That's how to be happy. That's the whole yeah. book. I thought it was really I mean there were a lot I liked this book a lot. Me too. And I felt like we talk a lot about the concept of like reading a book at a certain period in your life and yeah. it has the most relevance. And I think this Instead of being a period in your life, like a period in society that makes it the most relevant. Like you read this during the pandemic and it it means a lot. And I think that's nice. I like that it's a comment on like emotions and society at the same time, which I think is kind of um, really sophisticated. I liked her use of scale and her page layout and her use of colors and even when she was just using black and white, the style of drawing, there were dark lines, light lines, pencil drawings, like a variety of different artworks that sort of each art style was matched to the story, which I thought was really well done. Yeah, this is a real showcase for her talent and versatility as a cartoonist and an illustrator, which is, is cool. It almost has, reminds me of like a, like a mixtape or something yeah. like that. I think also, I mean, I, I said this a lot about her work, but it's sort of, it's literary and it's high concept art, but it's also very approachable and genuine. And I think she really has a great sense of narrative, even if it's like written word or, you know, artistic narrative. I think she really has a high skill in that. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely recommend like checking this out and, and checking out her other stuff. I mean, she's got... Uh, a book called Why Art that I really, really love. That's like a, a, a it kind of starts as like a, par- almost like a parody of like a visual essay on the concept of art or on the like, the a kind of a takedown of like the sort of overly mannered and objective ways we try to talk about art and then becomes this really surreal story that examines like the idea of artists and art and the relationship between them between artists and art and also between art and artist and the viewer of art so definitely check that one out uh i haven't read her most recent graphic novel which is called the hard tomorrow but apparently that's just like a straight up sci-fi story which sounds cool because like she's done did stuff like that in this so it'd be interesting to see her take on a longer work of that nature 
And also, I want to find out if the title is a reference to The Long Tomorrow, which is a famous Mobius and Dan O'Bannon uh, comic that was published, I think, in Heavy Metal originally. Well, that'll be your homework. You'll have to report that back to us. Uh, yeah. But yeah, this was really, really good. I, I Like I said, definitely recommend it. She's a real fucking talent. Yeah, I mean, I, I, if I, like, if I was on Goodreads, to give it a five star. Mm. And if somebody said, like, what should I read? I would recommend this. I've but, already recommended it to people who've been like, oh, I want to read some comics. And, like, I don't want to read superhero stuff. Like, I, this has for a little while now been, like, my first one where it's like, go read How to Be Happy. Like, that, that's, like, as far, almost as far as you can get from that stuff. And it's really fucking good. But I think also, I think it, it's. It needs to be said as often to people, especially during the pandemic, that it's okay to have as many kinds of feelings. I mean, this is like a Sesame Street thing. <laughs> it's okay. As a mom, I say it's okay to have all these feelings that you want to have, and not all your feelings are going to be good, but as long as you're honest and you're with yourself and you're aware, and I think that's okay. And I think that everybody needs to give everybody a pass on like it's okay to just say like i'm mad like i don't know how many times in the last month i said i'm just mad like Mm. there's no there could be 700 reasons why you're mad or no reasons but that's okay and i think this book sort of explores that like as adults sometimes we're conditioned not to talk about our feelings a lot but i think we should talk about our feelings more and also we should talk about like mental sort of health and how people are feel and giving people check-ins and your check-in can just be something like how are you feeling today or like you know let's have a cup of tea or let's do this or something that sort of comforts people and self-care is like important like i didn't realize how important self-care was until the pandemic yeah but there's also like this book is the warning of like that can't like it can't just be surface level shit and you can't be totally reliant on like, well, I'm just going to do the self-care thing and, and like do some yoga and that'll be fine. Like, But it, also self-care can be, it doesn't always have to be, self-care doesn't always have to be like self-help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you can do something, you know, you can knit a cozy for a rock and that can make you feel better. You can make pumpkin bread, you can... Sure. Eat six box of Cheez-Its in the bathtub. Like, whatever you want that, like, makes you feel better for whatever period of time. And that's important. Yeah, yeah. But just, but again, it's like this thing where it's like, eating a box of Cheez-Its in the bathtub is not going to make you feel better forever. Like, and don't get hung up when it doesn't. Like, it'll make, it might make you feel better for the duration that you're in the bathtub, but who knows. But sometimes you just need a little bump to get you over so that you can start to have, like, a better... Sure, sure. Yeah. That's not saying, like, if you have bi- bipolar depression, you know, making pumpkin bread is not going to cure that. You're going to need to go to the doctor. Yeah. But, like, if you're stressed out because of the economy or because of the election or because of the pandemic or because people won't wear their fucking mask, then maybe, like, yeah, having a cup of tea and eating six chips of oil make you feel better yeah but also until the pandemic is over hold off on getting in a big bag from the netherlands <laughs> with 12 other people so and if you skin a fox don't show me on instagram i don't want to see it <laughs> <laughs> so uh this is our last episode for january uh next month is february so for our novella we're gonna read the pattern master by octavia butler so a love story <laughs> kind of uh so this it's uh you know it's sci-fi from the 70s we're gonna getting back into that which is cool you know 
I would position this like in the new wave with like other writers we've covered before, like Samuel Delaney and Ursula Le Guin. So that's cool. I think this is a Butler is like a writer that I really like. Like she's one of my favorites and a big blind spot that we haven't covered yet. I think this is her first novel. It's also interesting because it is part of a series, and like the copy I have, I think on the title on the cover, it's like. The f- number four in the Patternist cycle, but it's like the first one published. It's just the last one chronologically. Okay. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, and then for the comic uh, for February, we're going to read Clue Candlestick, which is, yes, a licensed comic based on the Clue board game. But it's by Dash Shaw, who is a cartoonist that I think is really interesting, whose other works are kind of like too long mostly for us to cover here. So this will be an interesting opportunity to talk. Well, this will be a nice opportunity to talk about him. Uh, and it's, I think it's a really novel take on like Clue the board game, which is a board game that weirdly has like a big pop culture footprint outside of being a board game because it has the movie. And this is like a totally different take on that. It's also kind of an examination of like mysteries and like games as a storytelling mechanisms. I think it'll be a really interesting conversation. Well, I can't wait to read the Butler book because you promised me that it was very weird, which I'm interested. Everyone knows if it's weird or disturbing, then I want to know about it. And then also, I'm a huge fan of mystery, so I'm excited to read the Clue comic. Yeah, so uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone.